0: Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others. To grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years. And that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm You member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Sean Quinn of HOK San Francisco to talk about his experience with vertical farming and city planning. Sean leads the sustainable design practice of HOK San Francisco, a global design, architecture, engineering, and planning firm. He's responsible for coordinating services across the firm's Pacific region. His approach to sustainable design is grounded in climatically tailored solutions that respond to the economic, environmental, and cultural context of cities. Sean complements his design practice with research in green building technologies, including, among other things, urban and vertical agriculture. Sean is a lecturer at Danube University Krems, Austria, was an assistant professor at the University of Hong Kong and is a frequent lecturer at international universities and conferences. For the past several years, Sean has led research in urban and vertical farming and developed a prominent exhibition on urban ecology and biomimicry at the Hong Kong Shenzhen Biennial of Agriculture and Urbanism. His research has been presented to students key stakeholders at the United Nations, as well as for multiple international governments, diplomatic, private, and non-profit organizations. Sean believes that urban agriculture can provide a multifaceted solution to the health and resilience of cities while catalyzing community and economic growth. Welcome to the show today, Sean.
2: It's great to be here, Greg. Yeah. i happy to join the Urban Farm Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So
0: I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get
2: where you're at now? Yeah, sure thing. So my background is actually architecture. I have about 13 years of professional experience working across uh, North America, Europe, Middle East, Mm -hmm. Asia. And then I've wrapped my way back around to San Francisco. So done a little bit of a a world-round trip over the course of the past several years. Mm -hmm. But the more that I've sort of built into my my career, the more I've sort of focused uh, a little bit more on sort of the interaction between what we call sort of the built environment, the sort of urban sphere that we're obviously building up, against the natural one. Mm -hmm. And that kind of form and understanding and exploring the issues of climate change, energy use. And interestingly, now sort of what's known as sort of the energy, water, food nexus in order to generate any of the resources that we all need to do both the industrious and just survivalistic things. It takes a lot of resources. And to be honest, food and, and farming is becoming increasingly important of an issue.
0: No kidding. So you mentioned an interesting term, energy, water, food nexus. Can you say more about that?
2: Yeah, sure thing. So in order to generate, you know, a single watt of, of energy, it actually takes about a, a gallon of water. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so anytime, if, whether it's, you know, burning coal, and essentially you need to uh, use water to sort of cool the uh, engines in there, if you're generating, uh, you know, solar thermal energy, there's a lot of water that's sort of being evaporated off, you look at really large scale solar systems, it's mm-hmm. concentrated and uses steam. So right. anytime, whether through fossil fuel or renewable energy, we're generating power, we're actually using up a lot of water. And that obviously has a reciprocal impact that it's water being taken away from, from our food. Something else, yeah. Uh, and so all of these things that we do to sort of live in the modern lifestyle that, that, that we have... Uh, takes away from those three parts and we need to find a better way in order to actually balance them and that's a possible thing to do to actually take some of that water and refeed it into the ground take some of the energy that we're using in our buildings and use that essentially is and recapture that store that back into heating water that's been going back out into systems that could be recycled and reused into food so Mm -hmm. when you finish drinking water out of the tap what's to stop it from going to a garden outside of your house yeah
0: yeah here in arizona we call that gray water use so Exactly. So you work for one of the bigger architectural firms in the country, dare I
2: say the world? Uh, Yeah, HOK is sort of one of the 10 largest design firms in the world, and we're the largest architectural engineering firm in the U.S. Interesting.
0: So why are you interested in urban agriculture?
2: So this actually started about, I'd say, three to four years ago. I moved from Washington, D.C. to Hong Kong uh, and joined an international practice base there and was also teaching at the University of Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. I was invited very early on to um, participate in sort of a a public exhibition on urbanism and architecture called the uh, Hong Kong Shenzhen Bi-City Biennial. And everyone that's entering into that is trying to take a look at what's the future of cities look like. And mm. some people are doing it from an aspect of sort of uh, industrialism or social engagement. We started looking at it just in terms of ecological footprint. And as I was brand new to Hong Kong, it made a lot of great sense so trying to try and understand the history of Hong Kong's development. It's the tallest, densest city in the world, and you kind of just assume energy is going to come up as the number one, you know, source of you know ecological consumption. Right. Um, And I was pretty shocked to find it was number two. Food consumption was the number one source of carbon emissions and overall ecological use in Hong Kong. And so you kind of look at a city like that, and you, you have to been, you know, ask a very you know, in-depth question of you know, exactly why. And it's the essence that Hong Kong going back to the 19th century was rice paddies, 80% agricultural land, You a know, mix of rice and a little bit of opium. Uh, if you go deep into the history of Hong Kong, you understand the, some of the opium trade and wars that happened there as right. a result of it. But as, as sort of post World War two, when the sort of more Chinese immigrants, because they're coming into Hong Kong, they started to actually cultivate the land further, to the point at which in the 1960s, uh, Hong Kong was generating between two thirds and three quarters of its own food, which is pretty solid for any kind of large-scale international city. Right. But it became a big international trade and banking city, and urban expansion sort of happening really quickly there. That over the course of literally only fifty years, they've gone from being, you know, let's say seventy-five percent self-sufficient to only two percent.
0: Oh my gosh. Meaning
2: that they only generate uh, enough food for about one week a year also means that if you know there were to be a natural disaster and hong kong gets hit by typhoons a lot right if you weren't able to bring flights in if there was uh, any damage to some of you know southern china as well and mm-hmm. cause issues with that and we'd only have food for about 72 hours right before we started going into the non-perishables so you start understanding and thinking about the essence of sort of food resiliency and so you have to ask you know why where is all the food coming from why is it coming from so far and Hong Kong imports you know, from about 65 countries on a daily basis. Oh my gosh. It wastes about 3,500 tons of food, which is the equivalent of 8 million people going out and buying a double quarter pounder with cheese meal and throwing it in, throwing the, trash. It in the trash. Yeah. So we're bringing in a lot of food. It's going through you know, these rapid flash freeze cycles. There's obviously the tremendous amount of resources, whether it's coming from oh, New yeah. Zealand or France or the U.S., the emissions to bring it on a flight, to bring it into Hong Kong, it goes into another fridge, it goes to a distribution center, and then eventually ends up on someone's table. If you open up a package of spinach and you don't finish it, it's you know, done the next day. Right. And there is some, there's about 700 hectares of farmland left in Hong Kong, and there's some really good food being grown on it. But going back five years or so, it wasn't really trusted, and it wasn't really being cultivated bit, very much. It was mm-hmm. being looked at as a sunset industry. But with this need and real issue of you know, rapid urban expansion, you start understanding a little bit more about how do we begin to protect those 700 uh, hectares of farmland? How do we try and sort of instill that within some of our urban areas? And you start digging deeper and deeper. Um, there's All of a sudden you realize there's uh, this great social movement mm-hmm. of people that are growing urban farms throughout the city. There are over, I think, 25 urban farms right now, private urban farms on the rooftops of, of Hong Kong. The wow. tallest farm in the world is on top of the Bank of America Tower, so about... Fifty stories up, so probably around you know six hundred feet up in the air, is you know a a, a farm that's growing you know mint, basil, pak choi, as well as um, you know large yams. Wow! So you sort of then kind of question: what could we do with this? And right. that was sort of you know, what started striking my sort of interest. And in how does that begin to relate to architecture? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so I want to dig a little deeper here, and I want to know why HOK. Is interested in urban agriculture?
1: Sure. So
2: on an annual basis, HOK uh, does a lot of both land use planning, new building architecture. Um, mm-hmm. In total, our master planning group sort of plans out about the size of the state of Connecticut on an annual basis. Wow. So if you can imagine that being replicated every single year across yeah. the world, and we're, we're, we're one big firm. There are other firms doing that. The amount of impact that we have on the natural environment is pretty huge. Um, and so it's one part of responsibility. How can we better sort of understand some of the ecological resources that are out there and try and actually protect them? Yeah. Uh, but then it also feeds into resiliency. There's a lot of ecological resources that are out there that we typically kind of, you know, clear sweep and then e- engineer. Most of the time, if we actually work with a lot of the ecological systems that are already in place, we don't need to do that. And so our planning group really tries to focus on how best to maintain a lot of those corridors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for our buildings, we're really trying to focus on a lot of the things that make our cities and, and, and places where we live and work a lot more healthy. So what does it mean to actually be able to have you know, food grown in or around your office building? Mm-hmm. So, What kind of communal engagement does that begin to spark? how do we actually create sort of what we call a biophilic environment, one that sort of helps re- reaffirm our natural affinity to, to the environment by having food growing around us all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. So you used a couple of words that I, wanna, I want you to laser in on for me. Resiliency. Yeah. Can you, say, can you t- say a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, so in its truest definition, resiliency is the ability to sort of adapt to and sort of respond to any kind of inclement forces. Mm-hmm. So we measure that in a couple of different ways. The first one, sort of urban resilience or climate change resilience, it's really looking at sort of the large-scale factors that we'll have to deal with San Francisco in terms of big earthquakes uh, oh, yeah. in Hong Kong typhoons. Um, so how do we make sure that we build cities that are able to withstand some of those pieces? The other part of it starts so getting into actually some of the sort of social resilience, mm-hmm. um, and that is that, you know, we're, we, we want to make sure that people are extremely productive, and that is best done through creating healthy environments, through better, better, better community engagement, mm-hmm. social, social equity, and that creates sort of a, a you know, more of an interpersonal bond, and that, that resilience is extremely important to the growth of cities as a cultural place.
0: Beautiful. So you're, as a company, and personally, you're working in the vertical farming arena.
2: Well, we're both urban agricultural and vertical farming, but the vertical farming is what I'm I'm really sort of keen to dive deeper into. Great. Yeah,
0: Tell us about that and how it relates to the future growth of cities.
2: Sure thing. So vertical farming is really relevant because if you were to look at all of the rooftops in any city, even if you were to cover all of them, with urban farms, you mm-hmm. probably only generate between 10 to 15% of the food that's needed for that city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, What vertical farming does is it sort of gives us a better floor to uh, growth ratio. Mm-hmm. We can use aeroponic, hydroponic, or aquaponic systems, stack them on top of each other, repurpose parking garages, old existing buildings, and so sort of basically densify the amount of sort of agricultural growth that can actually happen in a, in a you know, per single acre. And that ratio becomes something along the lines of 8 to 10. Wow, 8 to 10 times. Yeah.
0: yeah. So basically, you're 3Ding food growth. That's exactly right. So, what is the role of design in advocating for and designing of urban agriculture in cities?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Is. So, I think, I mean, on the very obvious surface level, we've got great landscape architects. Who understand the kind of uh, you know plant species flora that grow in any region, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, utilizing that to best grow um, both you know food and you know sort of large oxidizing plants in the sort of exterior environment is really great. But what we're trying to understand now is actually how does that not only go in the exterior environment, but how does it come actually into the building? And so both from the industrial design of those systems, how would that actually uh, sit into a building mm-hmm. so that it's a fully functional? It's free of pests. It's able to grow in a really uh, quick and sort of easily maintainable way. Yeah. But then it also provides some form of interaction, right? I mean, there's a real neat opportunity that we can become, in many ways, going back to you know a sort of a much more um, a much more vernacular state of really understanding when and where our food is coming from. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Well, I think it's important for a couple of different reasons. Number one, the more that we're aware of how much resources go into something, the more that we're likely to be engaged in it. Mm-hmm. The secondary piece is that there's sort of a, a natural proclivity that we have to um, nature. And when we work in these really large sort of closed-off office buildings without views or access to the outside, either, there's sort of a, a natural tendency to get what we call a sick building syndrome or people to become mm. depressed. Uh, so having that sort of closeness to it, uh, obviously sort of engaged and alive in the person. Uh, but then the third part that I'm really sort of interested in, and sort of, sort of the, the social experiment side of it, what happens if you bring food into the office place? Mm-hmm. Are people going to want to take care of that? Are people going to be more likely to then sort of sit down at the pantry at, at lunchtime? Pick some of the uh, tomatoes that are growing in in their you know localized farm, mm-hmm. and balance together. How does it really start and try and cultivate that sense of community that we often can you know lose in cities?
0: What does some of your projects look like? If I was going to stand out in front of one of your projects, what would I
2: see? Um, so one of the best examples we have is Eskenazi Hospital, uh, which is uh, uh, right, obviously from definition, a healthcare facility. It's both um, in bed and out bed, which means that people both come there for you know, a single appointment or they might be there for a surgery and be there for several days. Mm-hmm. When you're recovering, you walk out onto the rooftop and there is basically, I think, two to three acres of, of farmland that you can sort of walk through on the rooftop of this building. Uh-huh. And so a great space to sort of be you know, joined into. Uh, we've got several projects where you obviously have you know, beautiful landscaping happening at the ground level and then it kind of actually pulls up the side of the wall. And oh, wow. so you have sort of vertical gardens that are sort of floating up and sort of tacking, tacking on to the outside of a building. Mm-hmm. And then it actually moves onto the top of the building. We have a few projects in design right now where we're actually trying to sort of see if by building a structure, we're actually increasing the amount of green space. What that means is if we actually keep our, our first floor a little bit small and perhaps the building expands as it gets a little bit higher uh-huh. or that by creating a series of what, what are called sky gardens uh, on intermittent floors and balconies, we might actually have more you know, natural space than if that building wasn't there at all. and It was just a flat park.
0: Sky gardens. What does that look like?
2: Sky gardens can look like they can look like anything from sort of your you know typical outside uh, garden bed and just sitting right outside of your window on the thirteenth or twenty fifth floor mm-hmm. and what normally happens on especially any high rise buildings you have to have what's called a refuge floor every twenty to twenty five stories it means that if there's a, an earthquake or anything else elevators bring everyone, elevators and stairs bring everyone to that floor and so that it's an overstructured zone oh, interesting. what we often do with those spaces uh-huh. is that you know, they're not really used for 99% of the time, right? They're only used in case of emergency. Mm -hmm. So why not use that as an amenity during the other times of, you know, of, of, of its existence. Uh, and so that means uh, any, you know, let's say a restaurant that's being, uh, that's on the, the lobby floor, can actually be growing any food that it needs right there on, on, on that garden. People so that are in a hotel that you could actually have sort of your, your pool amenity deck, uh, but then walk out and actually sort of see, you know, about a, you know acre of green space, lush gardens growing out there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the same amenities that we get when we want to go to a resort outside of the city. Right? We mm-hmm. were typically, used to, if you were to go to anywhere in the Caribbean or, or, or Hawaii, we expect to sort of see these lush gardens playing outside right. of our front door. But what would happen if we actually just extended you know, that slab a little bit outside of the building, whether it's a, a balcony deck you can actually access, which is a garden. We bring that experience into, into our, our city. Wow.
0: Wow, you have a lot of passion behind this. Yeah, tell it's me, a pretty tell exciting me, topic. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that.
2: My passion for this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, you know, you know in, in any state of architecture, we you know, deal with two different things. We deal with clients on a daily basis who are trying to execute a single building. And uh, the longer that you work, the more that you come across unique issues or challenges or problems that you maybe don't always face. Uh, and so I have the sort of unique fortune in my role that we do a good research, We right? sort of, you know, kind of pull through, and such as a big architecture firm, there are a lot of challenges that we don't always solve uh, right. on a regular project. So I get the real opportunity to sort of look at, you know, well, what if you took away some of the economic limitations, uh, building code limits, and just sort of said, you know, how do we better address this? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I call sort of this like future 2030 visioning. What are we trying to do in our buildings in the yeah. next you know, 15 to 20 years? And we exercise that, and then we kind of go backwards from there. And so then we then do begin to understand the economic impacts, the permitting impacts, social issues that may come up or might, might be solved. And so as we slowly move through all of our projects over that next time period, mm-hmm. we can begin to sort of inch our way to this.
0: Wow. So you're, this is a deep design process you're participating in. Yeah. It's not something that happens overnight. You've you've spent a lot <laughs> no. of thought in making this happen.
2: Well you know, there's been a lot of research into the the growth of cities to understand why this is such an issue. There's mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. a lot of uh, risk, especially as the cities continue to expand, that we lose a lot of the precious agricultural land, oh, yeah. some of that may be inevitable. And my key goal and vision is that if, we're, if something that has to be taken out, it needs to be relocated somewhere else just yeah. as good. Right. So if in order to you know, build out a new airport train expansion and we need to cut through two acres of farmland, well, I want to see that, that farmland being replicated somewhere along that mm. train corridor. Because there are going to be new buildings going up. Right. How does that help conserve the economic status of those farmers? And so there's a lot of different issues that we have to tackle with this. It's not a, a simple, clear idea of just, uh, you know, this is going to look cool. It's really a multifaceted issue, but it comes up with multifaceted solutions as well. Oh yeah.
0: So have you seen the work of Paolo Solari?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been. I was down in um, at Arcusanti actually earlier this year for the uh-huh. first time.
0: Oh, very good. Because he talks a lot about building out cities along rail lines, and then the farther away you get from the rail line, that becomes the agricultural land.
2: Right. That is sort of the traditional way of of looking at city growth. But I don't think anyone from the... Know, 1950s and 60s, when um, Paolo Soleri was, you know, really focused on his work, could imagine the growth of cities as we see it now yeah. in 2015. Yeah. Right now, we're seeing um, there are going to be 150 new cities um, emerging from villages throughout Asia. And so the growth of urbanization right now is higher than it's ever been in human history. Yeah. And so we don't, and, and as well as we're also keenly aware of the amount of resources mm-hmm. that it takes. To move from farmland in the Midwest out to our coast, and then obviously as well as people become more interested in different types of food and their culinary appetites expand, how much of that food then comes from even further away via uh, flights. Yeah. All of that resource use isn't sustainable long term. Right. And we also view farming as something that obviously... In certain regions of the world, America's actually being a great one. It's actually a very booming industry, um, but there's obviously a lot of farms that really struggle with, with being close to cities and being pushed out. So trying to look at how they can sort of bridge that gap, I think, is an important one, both from a resource standpoint, a social standpoint, um, and then sort of, you know, uniquely as an experiential standpoint. Yeah.
0: So talking about bridging the gap, uh, you're in California and yeah. really working on now the urban agriculture movement in California. What relevance right. does it have? All this work that you've done in California.
2: Yeah, well, so I'm you know been about six months in to California, so we're sort of gearing up for this work now. In uh-huh. Hong Kong, I was really focused on the lack of access to land. Um, in California, it's becoming the lack of access to water. Um, <laughs> of California. Course quite frankly, has been the breadbasket for the U.S. for a lot longer than it can possibly stand to be. Yeah. Uh, but it has a, a rich, um, you know, history of it. There's a phenomenal sort of closeness to the, uh, to the land that I, I find, at least the people in San Francisco, really still have. Mm, oh, yes. Um, and people are really attached to and and, uh, you know, keenly aware of, of their, you know, their, their diets, where food goes. I can't tell you how many times I hear people, you know, they start their Saturday mornings at the farmer's market, uh-huh. more so than any other place I've ever lived. Yeah. And so we obviously don't want to lose that. It's something that people really cherish here. But we obviously are over-consuming from the land that we've been given. So I think that urban agriculture here is going to play a little bit of a different role. Between San Francisco and San San Jose, we obviously have a lot of tech companies that are booming up in places that used to be sort of apple and uh, peach orchards. Mm -hmm. And so how do we preserve the land that's already there? How do we integrate some of that into those new developments and sort of unearth? The, the, the lost resources that have been sort of, you know, plowed over by highways. Yeah. And I think what we can regain is that the closer you actually have farming to buildings, the more access you have to water. There's oh, right. people in... Residential buildings are going to be, you know, drafting out water. We need to get we need to get more use per single gallon. We can't just, you know, you know, drink water and that be it. We need to actually make sure that anything we we don't, you know, pull out of that tap mm-hmm. is being used again for something else. Yeah. And that's a lot of grey water recycling, as as you mentioned uh, earlier. And what we want to do is try and make sure that we don't waste a single drop. Right.
0: Perfect. So. I came across you because there's a conference in San Francisco. It's, it's called the Microdesk Building Success Event, November 10th at SPUR. I guess that's an acronym. Building a Sustainable Future in the Bay Area with Urban Agriculture. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure thing. So
2: SPUR stands for the San Francisco Planning and Urban Revitalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're essentially a think tank uh, that deals with a multitude of sort of issues around uh, around urban design. Mm-hmm. Everything from climate change resilience to seismic issues, as well as a, a good focus on, on urban ag- agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, so the event that we're having that... Uh, we're sort of partnering with Microdescon, is really trying to sort of you know engage the architectural engineering and construction community mm-hmm. to sort of talk about that. So Spurs can be talking a little about the sort of history of agriculture uh, in the area here. A gentleman named Eli, who's sort of their 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 director in urban food policy. Mm-hmm. We have another expert uh, from agriculture as oh, well nice. as the. The the Association for Vertical Farming, uh, Henry Gordon Smith, uh, and he's sort of been you know you know you know now he's gone from ankle to you know neck deep <laughs> in all of the sort of advanced agricultural technologies that are coming out to make this sort of possible. And my role in this is of try and sort of see, well, how can we sort of take both the, the sort of need that's uniquely uh, to the Bay Area, mm-hmm. uh, as well as sort of the, the viable technologies, both sort of economically and sort of location context based, and begin to sort of start focusing on how we can integrate that into our projects and the urban growth of the area. Perfect. So that is the
0: Microdesk Building Success event. It's November 10th it's called building a sustainable future in the bay area with urban agriculture and we will have a link for that on the show notes page so what's next what steps need to be taken with urban agriculture and vertical farming to so that it becomes more widespread
2: yeah i mean so i think the the first piece and this is where microdesk is really great is just general general awareness Mm -hmm. Um, they do a great job of advocating uh, both for the issues in the built environment as well as the uh, opportunities for general innovation. Mm-hmm. The next piece for everyone else is, obviously, as we begin to talk about this, is to sort of connect the sort of multifaceted opportunities that come from that. And as we sort of talked about all of those right now, sort of right water and energy, access yeah. to healthy food, um, communal engagement, mm-hmm. we need to start sort of identifying the the land out there um, in cities, making sure that every plot of land that could be used for community gardening could become linked through that. Mm-hmm. We need to sort of, we begin to beautify our parks in the city or develop new ones, understand and sort of see is there an opportunity to actually integrate it there. But beyond that, as we begin to sort of start developing new office places, new workspaces where people are sort of especially in the sort of, you know, um, heart of tech country becoming adaptive to sort of new experiences? How do we sort of see urban agriculture, vertical farming uh, coming into the workplace as well? Yeah.
0: Yeah, perfect. Perfect. So I'm going to actually shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it.
2: Yeah. So I mean, I think, you know, pretty oftentimes I, I can you know, be uh, accused of either being on the bleeding edge of things or on the cutting edge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I, I, I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> so, being on the cutting edge obviously means you're 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 right on the pulse. Being the bleeding edge is perhaps being a little bit over over egregious or uh, stepping beyond that. Yeah. Uh, and so very often times, I think when these ideas first come up, you kind of tend to maybe ignore some of the, the practical pieces that need to go into it. And I've definitely been at fault of doing that, just being really passionate about sort of how do you just drive it forward. And you know, if, as, as a result, you don't necessarily end up with the sort of practical pieces that need to be implemented to engage that. Yeah. And so how do I overcome it? It's just simple learning um, that, you know, every time we... Put out one of these ideas. Whether it you know succeeds or fails in that single instance, it's you know what piece of the puzzle did you sort of pull out of that? You know what you know, part of the argument you know was successful, and you know where where did it fall short? Mm-hmm. If economics was the major issue, then we got to make sure that with the next client that we you know to uh, keep talking with them about it, that we really address that. Um, if it's the essence of you know complications and maintenance you know how do we begin to adapt that mm-hmm. and so in the case of you know urban agriculture and vertical farming now we've kind of gone through a lot of that the return on investment now for installing some of these smaller systems is only about three to five years wow we've looked at the economic models of return by sort of um, really scaling this up mm-hmm. um, that all of a sudden you know an office space might you know lose you know say say three percent of its leasable area but the actual uh, yield in terms of both both, you know, uh, food and financial value goes up by by the virtue of the fact that you can resell that food. And so I think different organizations and finding the right partners is what's key to sort of bringing that all together. Yeah.
0: So what do you consider your biggest success in this process?
2: You know, I think it's just been getting, it's, you know, it's really unique is that sometimes before you begin to build something, you, you actually have to spend a lot more time dealing with the, the social and technical issues of it. Yeah. So in Hong Kong, when we did this exhibition, we were kind of just you know, doing it out of sort of an essence of personal interest and research, a great opportunity to uh, do some sort of uh, you know, um, outreach for, for our firm. And we didn't really expect much more to happen beyond that. And the big success that came out of that was how many people um, started ringing my phone. Um, nice. the point in which, you know, as many of our ideas, we envisioned this 400-meter-tall uh, vertical farm tower and sort mm-hmm. of, you know, created both the you know, um, design and business case and sort of ecological system case. Um, what we were shocked by was that I got a call from the, the French Chamber of Commerce that the Hong Kong government was interested in developing a new city for 1 million people. And this is, you know, urban growth in southern China. Right. And that basically the French government and the Hong Kong government were going through a technology exchange, which is a fairly typical thing that happens between governments when they're uh, going into some major period of growth to try and basically help help, help each other out. Mm-hmm. Um, the French government's done a lot of things from aspects of, and this is going to go out of agriculture, district energy, district water, mixed modal transportation you know, waste management, and so the Hong Kong government was very receptive to all of that and brought the French government in to sort of, you know, listen to their business and, and businesses and experts. Uh, but when they asked about urban farming, they didn't really have anyone that could, you know, stand out in that in that realm. And so I got sort of invited into the conversation nice. as a, lo- a lone American in Hong Kong yeah. <laughs> uh, with, with a lot of French businesses. Yeah. And that was a, a massive opportunity to then really um, shine a light on this issue. And I think, You know, the the biggest success I think I came away from this is that, you know, it's very easy to sort of go into these processes a little bit antagonistic and protective. I'm trying to conserve something. And instead, I really started trying to approach it by what is the opportunity here? Um, Mm -hmm. And inevitably, the growth of some of those cities would necessitate some loss of farmland. And my goal was to minimize that. But really to look at how do you, you know, sort of use that kind of lightning bolt of development to try and raise awareness of the issue of farming in Hong Kong. And we developed, worked with the Hong Kong government to develop planning principles of how best to utilize that land, how to sort of create, uh, you know, social spaces around that. And then that just kept snowballing. Mm -hmm. I ended up um, speaking the next uh, spring in 2015 for the first International Summit of the Association for Vertical Farming in Beijing, China, right China's got 1.6 billion mouths to feed, and yeah. that's not an easy thing to do and you 've been cultivating rice for millennia. Um, it's not the best thing for soils and they've been growing their cities much faster and so Beijing was fantastically interested in all of the ideas that these international experts were bringing in on vertical farming. Mm-hmm. I, that just kept going where I've now talked with, you know, obviously presented to the, uh, the French Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, the British Chamber of Commerce in, in Hong Kong. I was invited by Microdesk to begin sharing some of these issues and begin looking at how do we repurpose infrastructure in the U.S. and did that at the National Press Club last fall. So I was able to speak at, you know, these you know, multitude of events and begin talking about this sort of, you know, urban natural issues. And that really kind of I think, culminated in, in my, one of my biggest sort of uh, career highlights. This past spring, we actually got to talk about this at the United Nations. I was going to ask uh, you about that. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of one of those special phone calls that you get. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, the UN has, at the end of 2015, had ratified, I think, I want to say 17 new principles for sustainable development. Uh, that they saw as sort of impacting, you know, both developed and developing nations. And, you know, the next piece of that is, you know, how do you really put that in action? So they invited experts as they saw it from, from throughout, throughout industry. And that was everything from design to media, healthcare, the internet of things, commerce to all come together and talk about how we can take some of those principles and those needs and start really, you know, building businesses out of that. Mm-hmm. How do you make the business of doing something good really profitable? Wow, congratulations, that's awesome. Thanks. Absolutely. <laughs> cool.
0: So, this, in this great segue into our next question, what drives you? Why do you do what you do?
2: <laughs> I, think, I think I am uh, naturally prone to just reverse engineer things. I look for the things that we aren't quite doing well enough yet. Uh-huh. And what are the gaps in between things? What are the transitions? And it's like following a, you know, just trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. I like unique challenges that we haven't been able to solve, and gotcha. especially those that really touch upon any piece of environmental benefit or sort of human wellness. Right. The more that we can sort of dive into that, the more that I just kind of start you know, peeling away, and it's hard, to, it's hard for my mind to stop diving into it. Yeah.
0: So it, it sounds like you're a bit of a what-if kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do that too. I love pondering that question, what if we could do this, or what if we could do that, so yay. Yeah. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, what, is yeah. there. Is there one book that has been influential for you in this process?
2: Yeah, you know, um, you know, more recently, and this is one of those, I think, books I read before moving over to Hong Kong, was uh, a book called um, Manahatta. It's the it's, it's a natural history of New York City, uh, written by Eric Eric Sanderson. He's got oh, a wow. great TED talk. He's got a great TED talk on it for those who uh, don't don't have the time to, to read the whole book. But he's someone who basically does what's called geographic geographic information services, travels the world, and uh, essentially looks at the, the the resources and the sort of history of topography and urban development. Uh, His company is based in Manhattan, but he's doing this all over the rest of the world. And at one point, he decided to focus that lens back on New York City. And what you uncover by sort of digging deep uh, back into history is that most of the resources that Manhattan needs, even as a city of 8 million people, it, it, it once had there. But through sort of ease of development and construction, right? We just sort of leveled it. New York used to be very hilly. We used to have aquifers right in the middle of it. And so there are a lot of resources that we don't pay attention to in the development of cities because we think of it as better, as you were saying earlier, with Palo we We we, we say, well, that should be located elsewhere. And to a certain extent, the more that we're now building and expanding new cities in places where only villages exist, we really need to take that into into consideration, and at the same time, even within the cities that are already there, what's our opportunity to sort of unearth or sort of you know revitalize some of those previous r- resources? Yeah. And I don't think I'd ever thought about it at that scale previously, mm-hmm. right? And you think about it as a little bit of a localized basis. When you actually kind of think about Manhattan as basically previously being really a farming you know, region. All right. You don't even begin to think about the fact that the city that now populates you know, with 8 million people used to exclusively be farms and ports to bring mm-hmm. in other food products. Wow.
0: That's called Manhattan. That- a Natural History of New York City by Eric Sanderson. Yep. Fantastic. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
2: Get involved. There are so many different forms of community farms that are just around the corner from you. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of social groups that are engaged in trying to understand or just sort of you know um, try and cultivate this sort of notion of urban farming there's a lot of people that need these access to these resources whether it's uh, homeless shelters or um, you know food drives get involved I mean it's just there's a it's it, it pulls at sort of a different place than we maybe normally think about on a daily basis. And I think it, it brings up uh, notions that are sort of embedded in our in our psyche through uh, millennia of human development that, you know, inherently we are sort of one big tribe. Yeah. Uh, and so the more that we can share that, the better off we all are. Nice.
0: Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Sean. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Greg, it's been a pleasure speaking with you as well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So the conference is the Microdesk Building Success Event. You'll be speaking at it. It's November 10th. And like I said, we'll have a link on our site for that. Uh, and uh, how can our listeners get a hold of you?
2: Uh, you can always reach me via email at uh sean.quinn at h-o k dot com. That's s-e-a-n- dot Q-U-I-N-N at h-o-k.com. our website also sort of highlights uh, a lot of the work that we have going on throughout throughout the region i also chair our uh, corporate social responsibility group hok impact and so if you have any interest in some projects out there whether you're a client of need or or, or if not we have you know teams that are really engaged to uh, be locally tuned so whether that's building a uh, small you know farm for a school or mm-hmm or building a a school from scratch. We're uh, here to help serve.
0: Far out. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.
0: Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient dense, healthy organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years. And that got me thinking, What if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. 444. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you.